Hi, everyone. We're so excited to be hosting this podcast. It's the first Ivy podcast, and we wanted to invite one of our most special Ivy members, uh, Susan Winterstein. So let me tell you a little bit about Susan. Susan is a mother of five daughters. She founded Savvy Interiors in 2002 out of a passion for design and a desire to find a creative outlet for her energies. In 2007, her husband, John, joined the Savvy Interiors team and they opened a San Diego showroom in 2015. As a designer and general contractor, she focuses on remodels and fixing so-called um, ugly projects. Um, as their team grows to three senior designers and three junior designers, they continue to focus on their design business, as well as nationally expanding their nonprofit Savvy Giving by Design, which we'll talk about later on uh, in this podcast. We're so excited to have you, Susan. Well, thanks so much for having me. So we'll dive right in and I'll start with my first question for you, which is about your process of bringing on new clients. So I just want to learn a little bit more about, you know, how does it look for you? Do you vet clients before getting them on? And what is the general process and what can you share with our community? Well, generally, most people will find me either our social media platforms, personal referrals. Um, when they contact us, there's a few different ways we get inquiries, either phone calls or an online form. Um, I, I've gone back and forth with this. I always like to talk to our potential clients in person myself first. After doing this for so long, I feel like it really helps me get to know who I'm going to be working with because when you are mm -hmm. remodeling their space, you want to have a good rapport right off the bat. So communication is super important to me. Right. I always start with, tell me a little bit more about your project. And I find that over the years, clients will tell you most of everything that you know. Um, I mm -hmm. generally always ask two questions in our onboarding, which is, you know, what is your project budget? And what is your timeline? And have you worked with a designer before? And then I usually ask, what type of design experience are you looking for? Are you looking for more of a full service design experience? Are you looking for more of just some, you know, DIY advice, feedback, um, help right. just selecting projects, things like that. So generally I like to talk to the clients because I can tell a lot about someone by mm -hmm. just having a really good sure. first initial conversation. And how much of the decision-making is impacted by, you know, the, personality of the client versus, you know, the scope of the project. I'm sure sometimes it's hard to draw a clear line between the two. Uh, it is sometimes as you get into a project, you know, when you're dealing with somebody's home, personality traits and things like that can come out. Um, I have certain things I want, you know, to look for, which is right. uh, trust is a big part of it. I want them to be able to trust their designer and trust mm -hmm. our process. Um, we're also fairly niched in our market. So, you know, yeah. there are certain things that I'm looking for and certain projects that I won't take on um, that don't fit, you know, what we're best at. So I really want to capitalize what we do best. Sure. Great. And on that point, I would love to know, how are you, how do you think about how many projects you take on at any given time? How did you decide on this number? How has this number evolved uh, since you started your business in 2002? Uh, generally, I, I take on, you know, I move very fast and not everybody does. So I, I like to move very quickly and I like to take on a lot of different projects. And I've found over the years that different clients work at different speeds. 
So once I get a sense about a week or two into a project, how quickly they're wanting to move, I'll do what I call kind of a triage. And so I will move quickly with those clients that want to move fast. And then I will move slower with the clients that aren't in such a hurry and want a little bit more time to make up their minds. And so I generally will schedule those clients out further and then schedule more immediate meetings with the clients that want to move a little bit quicker. So that allows me to kind of keep my plate full, quote unquote, on it from a, a weekly standpoint. And kind of leapfrog, okay, you know, in two weeks, I know I'm meeting this client because she's going to need that long to make a decision versus next week, I'm meeting this client because she wants to move a little faster. Mm -hmm. So typically, we take on per designer, I would say 10 to 12 projects um, per designer. Um, I would say half of those are probably larger projects and the other half are probably smaller in different phases. So they may be finishing up or they just need, you know, the painter to get out there or they need this or that. So from an active standpoint, when you look at all of our active projects, we've probably got about 50 to 60 total, but they're all in different phases of their project. Okay, gotcha. That makes sense. And on that point, speaking of clients, have you ever needed to break up with a client? And what does that look like? And how did you manage this sensitive conversation? And specifically, what made you decide to call it quits? Was there anything, any red flag that you you feel you could have predicted or, you know, any advice on how to handle these situations? Uh, There's all sorts of reasons why working with a client may not be a good fit for your business. And so, you know, to be somewhat PC about it, it's always super hard to have to end that design relationship and you want to do it as delicately as you possibly can. But sometimes it's really clear when a client, let's say, has a really hard time making decisions and it's stressing them out and you've kind of moved on to the next projects and you can't really accommodate from a timing perspective working with them anymore because it seems to kind of get delayed. And so a lot of times we'll say, listen, you know, we just, we're not going to be a good fit. We move a little bit quicker and you may need somebody that can move even slower, you know, for you than we can. Or you may have someone that really is more of a DIYer that wants your opinion and your help, but they want to go out on their own and do things. And we're geared a little bit more towards full service. So we want to take that project from start to finish. And sometimes when you have a client that wants to go out and shop on their own or do on their own, that's not necessarily a good fit for us. They may be better suited for an e-design project. And so, you know, generally what we'll do is try to come back with, you know, our firm works this particular way. It looks like, or it sounds like you like doing it this way, and we're just not going to be a good match. And that's hard sometimes because, you know, it's, um, you know, that client wants what they want. And so it's been, I haven't mastered it yet by any sense, but. I don't um, think you ever learned how to deal with those. (laughs) It is, it's hard, but it's necessary sometimes to draw those limits and boundaries over. um, And then, then there's a lot of times you just have personalities. I've found that, you know, we have with our senior designers, uh, some distinct personalities. And there's some clients that work really well with some personalities and some that work really well with different types. So I know myself and I'm a fairly strong personality and I can come across kind of strong. And so for someone that needs a slightly gentler approach, I have a designer who's wonderful at that, who's very kind and patient and soft-spoken and 
So we counteract each other. So once I, I go through that onboarding process and figure out their personality a little bit, who's going to respond because not every, it's a relationship. Not every person is going to respond really well to that particular designer. Absolutely. Great. And speaking of what's the best fit for your business. So obviously um, it's the type of client, the type of project, but also what about the business model? So there's lots of different types of business models, interior design firms have, and I'd love mm -hmm. to hear a bit about yours and, and, you know, basically how does your firm make money and how did you decide on this structure and what do you like most about it? Well, our business structure is a little unique in Southern California because the traditional structure is you hire a general contractor and they may have a designer on their team or you hire a designer and they may know a lot of general contractors and the client traditionally would sign contracts with both. What we did was um, we got a general contractor's license assigned to our firm so our designers can subcontract and be general contractors in California, which the rules are different across the country. So what we've done is focused on more remove and replace and remodels in Southern California and, and furniture and design um, where we only work with our subcontractors. So we don't work with other contractors and we don't mix and match, which means we don't come in and only use ours for what clients need and then they wanna use their Uncle Jerry for, for a carpet. And we're like, no, we don't do that. So you know, we're fairly niched in We've found a way to create a level of service with contractors that we trust. And so if I wanna come in and do something a little out of the box and creative, and I say, can I do this? And my contractor says no, or they say, yeah, we can. I trust his answer mm -hmm. because I've worked with him for years. Uh, same with our tile setters and installers. You know, I've worked with him for over 15, 16 years. Um, even before I was a designer. So he knows how I like things installed. Um, from a business perspective, what that allows us to do is offer several levels of service. So we generally start with our kind of design hat on and meet with a client and we charge a We do kind of a hybrid pricing model is what I would call it. Okay. Which is we start with our design fee to come in and conceptually come up with your design plan for your space and we do our storyboards at that point and we do our furniture layouts and drawings um, and then we do um, we move into kind of a general contracting phase which is we will um, put proposals together for all the labor mm -hmm. and then we charge a flat percentage to manage that process and the calendar and to manage all our subs and get the scheduling done um, for products we resell, um, we establish kind of long-standing relationships with our vendors to where we've built up volume and we've built up trust. Um, and we have kind of a built-in insurance policy, if you will, that if a, you know, a tile comes cracked or broken or uh, you know, a package is delayed or anything like that, uh, we know that with our dedicated reps, they're going to make it right. And they'll get it to us the next day or they'll expedite things for us. So we only order through our vendors um, that support us. And, and on so that we point, get, yeah, and really uh -huh. quickly, just on that point, so if you, what would be your advice though for a newbie, you know, who's in the business a couple of years, who doesn't have those long existing relationships? Like how do they, you know, how do they kind of take advantage yeah. of what you're taking advantage of? 
I think you have to you have to learn by doing. And so if you find a couple of good products or good vendors in your area and you stay loyal to them mm -hmm. and you do some repeat business and you develop relationships with mm -hmm. them and you go to their classes or anything that they're offering socially, um, you I've burned through so many people over the years just by doing. So mm -hmm. you'll find out which ones are good that you can trust and which ones aren't. Um, for a lot of designers, um, they wind up working with other contractors in the field that the you know client has chosen and things like that. So it's a little harder because they have to learn for the first time and every subcontractor works differently. Mm -hmm. um, and they're not necessarily in charge of all the materials ordering. But I would say for furniture um, and for more of the decor items, find those manufacturers where you purchase 80% but from the same people all the time and the other 20% might be a one-off or might be through a, you know, a, a Ivy purchase agent or something like this, mm -hmm. but you know, find those vendors that you trust that consistently deliver good product mm -hmm. and talk to your sales rep, have them come visit you, you know, go to their info stuff. Um, because that's, that's going to be a make or break, you know, as because ultimately we're only as good as our vendors. Um, you know, you can tell, you can be the best designer in the world, but unless you are in a situation where you can rely on your vendors to back you up and replace a product when it's damaged, um, that's what establishes your reputation in the market is mm -hmm. by having a reputation of having good quality things. Mm-hmm. Makes that's sense. And on that point, when you're talking about vendors, how, how do you think about markups? Like what's your philosophy on markups and how has this served your business model? Um, I think initially when I first started, um, I only felt my value was in the discount I could offer my clients. Mm -hmm. um, I felt like it justified them paying my design fee if I gave them a a good discount on their furniture so that it kind of offset what my fee was. And I think that's a common thread with younger designers mm -hmm. and it might be fine. It might be part, as long as you recognize that that's part of your business model in order to establish business is that you're giving them a, an exchange of your design ideas for them buying through you so that you can establish those relationships and do the type of design that you want to do. But I think what's missing as you become more experienced or you have more confidence in your design skills is there's an opportunity to um, compete with e-commerce. And I call it e-commerce because e-commerce is not retail. Retail is full MSRP, which nobody is charging these days. Um, and because of online pricing, um, you have to be really smart about buying on the back end. Um, and again, it goes back to those dedicated reps and volume and doing a lot of business with 80% of your vendors um, so that you're getting the best buying power that you can on good quality products. But I generally mark up my, our products um, to match a lot of e-commerce pricing. Um, and mm -hmm. if I buy smart and I work really hard on my buying power, then I should be making a decent markup to count towards my profit on my business. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's time and energy that goes into design fees and then there's design hourly. So design fee is different than design hourly. Design fee is your concept, your, you know, however many years you've been alive looking at art galleries and 
magazines and everything else. That's just conceptually, that's your fee for your mm -hmm. eye. And then there's design hourly that is your physical time of meeting with clients and going through that decision-making process. And then to me, my markup on my product is uh, overhead part of my profit, part of mm -hmm. trying to make my business successful. Um, and compensating me for the work that I've done in identifying those vendors that are good vendors to continue to purchase from and that, that my client can trust me when I say this dresser is going to look great and it's going to mm -hmm. function really well for you. Mm -hmm. um, that's my profit for having done all of that over the years. Mm -hmm. Makes total sense. That makes so much sense. And it sounds like you've built so many relationships, so much trust with a network of contractors and vendors over the years. And since you've been in business since 2002, is there any oops moment, any big mistake that you've come across that you've learned from that, you know, you can kind of advise on for newbie designers that might, you know, be starting their own business? Um, there have been so many mistakes that it's hard to count. <laughs> so, um, I think whenever you're growing a business, um, you try a whole bunch of different things. And again, I move fairly quickly. And if I see that something isn't working, I don't hesitate to try to fix it and do it different. Um, I think most of the errors that I've made is um, uh, mostly with employees. Uh, mostly with the team mm -hmm. that we've put together. I've gone through several different iterations um, of team members and who's a good fit and who's a good hire and how I want to compensate them. Those are probably the bulk of the mistakes mm -hmm. that I've made over the years. Um, mm -hmm. I've never felt the pressure to know everything about design because there's so much to know that I've always taught you know, our, our uh, employees that if you don't know, just know where to go to get the answer. Um, there's no excuse yeah, for, you know, not knowing. You just, you know where, who to go to and ask the right questions and to be as educated on your product as possible because the education um, that you receive on that product is going to help you sell that product. And half of design, at least half, if not more, is sales and the other half is having that design eye. Um, but I think most of my mistakes are all employee related. And do you think, speaking of knowledge and learning from your mistakes and you know, seeking advice, do you recommend that for designers to do early on in their career? Have you done this? Um, you know, some designers are very guarded. Um, what mm -hmm. do you think of this? Um, I think asking questions is, um, yes, I, I think over the years, it's changed a little bit, certainly with different communities that have popped up and stuff like mm -hmm. that, that were a lot more open. And um, again, you know, the biggest piece of advice is don't feel dumb for asking the question. You, you're, it, yeah. Because if you make the mistake and didn't ask the question, there's some things you're going to learn that you could not have anticipated, okay? That, that you, it's an on the job training and you will make the mistakes and you'll make better mistakes tomorrow. And the one beauty of this job is that you're always learning. You're always, there's always some unique situation, especially when you're using customization in your designs that you don't know what you don't know yet. So being as educated as you can, but just realize that some of that just comes with experience. 
and mm -hmm. not to, um, you know, get down on yourself. If you make those mistakes, all you can do is how you react to them. And you won't make that same mistake twice, you know, because you will have learned and you will be more experienced to educate your clients in the future on, um, you know, why you don't do it that way anymore because you had this experience in the past. But again, it goes back to why you want to have some of those markups in there because if you are doing something very custom for someone and you've only got a 10% margin on that project, um, it's going to be really hard to remake right. it all over again for them when it comes mm -hmm. back messed up um, because you didn't think of one little detail that didn't get accommodated. Those are some of the reasons that you want to protect yourself financially and be able to know that if you're doing something highly custom that you're charging appropriately for it so that if there is an issue, you do have a little bit of cushion there. Mm. Makes total sense. Um, okay. So the next question is going to be a bit controversial because I don't think everyone will agree with what you say, but I think the takeaway could be worthwhile for some listening. So what do you think both experience and of course newbies seem to often be getting wrong when it comes to running their interior design business? Basically, what's a common mistake you're seeing a lot of people make in the industry? Um, I think that as designers, um, we're creatives. And I think that sometimes we lack business skills um, in the accounting and in, the, um, in, in running a profitable business. I think we get very excited when we see money coming in the door and we're not necessarily focusing on the money that's going out the door. Um, and so for me, I've always been probably more intrigued by the business mm -hmm. um, side of it because as I've gotten more experience and grown in, I mean, when I first started my design business, I was a total hobbyist. I did it on the side. My kids were babies. I wanted some fun money. And I, you know, my husband worked a full-time corporate job. And I was a stay-at-home mom and I loved being a stay-at-home mom and I just wanted to do this as a creative outlet and then it grew into like a real big girl mm. business and I had to pay attention and I had to say oh okay well you know if I'm doing this and um, you know in 2007 my husband was was traveling a lot we wanted a different lifestyle we wanted um, you know to spend more time with our kids growing up and watch them grow up and be a part of their lives and so when we decided to make that leap because the business had grown quicker than I anticipated and into something that I didn't anticipate, um, you know, I had to get serious about the way I wanted my business to look and run. And so I think being serious, if you want to be a business, it, there's nothing wrong with being a hobbyist either. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm not knocking that. If that's yeah. what you want to do and you don't really have interest in being a a business business, then, you know, it's all about what you enjoy. But if you have an interest in being a business, then really getting a sense for what your overhead is, what your profit margins are, what your total costs are, what, you know, your computer costs you everywhere, what your car lease is, all, all of these things um, play into your bottom line and making sure that you're, you know, smart in a business sense and getting, even if you don't have that business sense to hire the people that are better around you, Mm -hmm. um, that would be number one. And then the second is don't wait too long to hire an assistant. Don't, mm -hmm. don't try to do everything yourself. Um, 
as a designer, if you find that you've got clients, more clients than you can handle and you're busy, hire people around you that are better than you. Hire people that have a skill set that you don't have, that you're looking for to augment your business. Hire an assistant that can call and get those tile prices and get orders placed for you and do some of the paperwork and offload so that you can go out and take on more design clients because now you have this extra time that's not spent doing the everyday administrative tasks that come along with this business because from a math perspective, when you just add up the numbers, it makes all the sense in the world. Mm-hmm. You will come out ahead. But mm-hmm. a lot of times I see people trying to be solo and do it all themselves. And it can be a little crazy making and they get burnout really quick. And it's unnecessary. I think it's, it's quicker to, to try to bring someone on and help. Well, I'm glad I asked because that is a great, great answer. And I think a lot of people are going to grow mm-hmm. from listening to that. I wanted to go back, Susan, to working with contractors. Um, Any words of wisdom for your fellow IB community on that? I know that you're a GC too, right? Right. Yeah. So, and any thought on, you know, if this has helped you in your business, would you recommend this route to others or how? How has that helped you working with contractors in general? Um, personally, uh, you know, having worked with a lot of different people over the years, mm-hmm. um, there are some that you can really come to rely on that have do good quality work. And there are some mm-hmm. that are really flaky. And even I have right. some that are still kind of flaky. And I always call it herding cats. You know, mm-hmm. you are responsible for right. hurting those cats so but if you teams. Yeah. yes so many different personalities so not only do you have your clients personalities you have your contractor personalities and you have your employees personalities and it's right. really kind of shifting gears with each group to figure out how to best manage um, those personalities um, contractors that we have are wonderful at their trade, but they are probably terrible at business. And so I get, you know, bids through text messages or, you know, this and that and the other. So what I try to do is help them help sell their services because I believe that they're good by providing comprehensive bids to my clients. So for us, subcontracting has really upped our business because I'm one point person, right? I'm from start to finish. I can manage the whole process. So I take those contractors bids and I put them into our system and make them cohesive. And I look for the holes or the things that they're missing in their bids that my client is going to want to know about. Um, So I try to organize it for these subcontractors. Um, In working with contractors, I will say that you have to be Switzerland. You, You cannot, you have to advocate for your client, but at the same time, you need to stand up for your contractors and that they are working hard just like you are to do a quality job. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that you, um, sometimes they get um, uh, unfairly blamed and likewise, sometimes Mm -hmm. the client, there might be a personality clash or something like that. So you really are, before you jump to conclusions that your, your contractor did something wrong, you really need to gather all the facts and talk to both. It's kind of like parenting when siblings fight. You have to talk right. to each sibling, right? And sit them down mm-hmm. and say, okay, what's your experience? What okay, what's your experience? And then you have yeah. to somewhere in the middle find that, um, you know, that, that equilibrium. And I would say that once you gain the respect of the contractors that you work with, um, they will be loyal and they will come back and they will go the extra mile for you. And again, it's kissing a lot of toads before you find your princes. You know, you've got to go through sometimes some really crummy experiences to figure out 
what really works well and who are the people that you want on your team because not everyone is meant to be there with you when you're starting out is meant to finish with you. You know, that old saying, Mm -hmm. as you grow and as you get more experienced, you might demand a different level of service than when you're Mm -hmm. first starting out because you don't know any better. And, you know, as you get more experience working with people, if you find something, someone that you work really well with, hang on to them and make it easy for them. It's priceless. Um, Yes, Mm -hmm. it is. When you find a good team, um, it's, it's um, unusual because, you know, it, it's hard to find good contractors that are nice people. And I feel like we've got a really good team that are good at what they do, but they're genuinely good people. And so I protect them. And so I don't, um, if a client has a hard time with somebody, um, you know, for whatever reason, because I've worked with these guys for so long, I'm probably going to, um, you know, listen to their concerns and empathize, obviously, but I, I, I may not go back to that particular contractor if I feel that it's um, out of character mm-hmm. for that person. Yeah. Susan, one okay. of the more inspiring things about you, I'm really inspired by what you do with, um, you know, Savvy Interiors, but at the same time, you are running Savvy Giving, and I think that is so inspirational because you are managing a growing and successful interior design firm while at the same time running a nonprofit that is truly impacting the lives of children with medical crises. And I would love to hear a little bit about that, hear how other people in our community can get involved with it, and also how, how you said about you know, making time for this passion that you know, uh, clearly probably takes up some of your time and how you manage both. Sure. So um, Savvy Giving by Design is absolutely my passion project that started about three years ago. Um, Giving back has always been a part of the fiber of my, uh, you know, raising our children and being a part of the community. And through interior design, I was fortunate enough to build kind of a community base on social media um, through a couple other Facebook group pages that I run and um, through past clients Um, and friends and family, everything else. So when we were presented with an opportunity for one of our uh, local kids here who was diagnosed with cancer uh, and rhabdomyosarcoma, I reached out to that community and they had donated enough funds to redo her room. And all it took was one room and I was completely hooked. Um, So I did that uh, for about a year. I did a couple other kids' rooms and then I had a client approach me who I had worked for and became friends with and said um, she had uh, retired from the district attorney's office and had offered to help us become an official 501c3 Um, to which I said that's great I can do the design you guys can do the paperwork and she and my husband worked on the paperwork part and and again I've been fortunate enough to surround myself with people that have skill sets that I don't have. And that's really the key is, you know, if you enjoy design and you do well with design, um, you know, to, to surround yourself with good people around you. Uh, launching a nonprofit is pretty much akin to having a whole other business. I could probably dedicate easily 40 hours a week to growing this at a much faster pace than I have been, but we've done about 36 spaces so far. And um, I just, I can't say no. So I, continue to meet with these families and and am so humbled by their experiences 
Um, but what I've found as a designer, and one of the things that I haven't really touched on in, in uh, other discussions as much, is that whenever you're involved, whether it's through a program like Savvy Giving and working with kids, um, or you're helping caretakers or wounded veterans or seniors, um, whatever you, whenever you can give back your design talents to a nonprofit or in a community that normally wouldn't have access to this kind of a luxury service. Um, it's tremendously grounding um, as, as a designer because what I see typically over years of being in the business is that sometimes we can get caught up in designers of working in a particular luxury market where we get very stressed when things don't go perfectly and when a product shows and it has damage or um, you know a tile doesn't turn out the way you want it to or something you know your client's unhappy about um, some piece or part of their project that is fixable like you can fix it with you know it may cost you a little bit it, it is fixable you are given this contrast of working in these communities with people that where some of their problems are not fixable by putting money towards it. Uh, some of their problems are permanent and some of their problems are um, tragic and some of them are um, heartbreaking. And so when they show such appreciation for what your talents have brought to their experience, it's a nice balance to be able to go into a project and then have a really good perspective mm -hmm. on what's really important yeah. and, and where your priorities really need to be. And it, it's got a very calming effect when you do encounter a problem on your everyday job to say, hey, this is, this is not a problem. We can fix this. This is a fixable thing. We can you know, provide solutions for this. Um, so it really does give a lot of designers, whatever it is that you choose to do, an opportunity to kind of balance out those experiences. But Savvy Giving by Design is unique in that we do kids' spaces generally, their bedrooms, and we try to provide a lot of function towards their healing because there's so much research out there that your space mm -hmm. can really affect how you heal and how you recover from a trauma. Um, so when we're designing the spaces um, for these kids, we really want to make them you know, obviously look really nice and look super cute and a place that they're proud to call their room and to be in. Mm -hmm. But then we also want to remove a lot of the dangerous things that can come along with, you know, some of the, the room furniture, sharp edges mm -hmm. that they might bump into and cut open a leg and get infected when their immune system is down, or maybe it's having enough space in the, in the room for a wheelchair to, to turn 60 inches and reach a diameter or maybe it's getting the dresser out of the room and into the closet built in with, you know, California closets has been great to us in San Diego um, for building out our closet spaces. So there are so many um, wonderful opportunities um, for us to create a healthy healing space for them um, that we can be a, a small part of their journey. So for me, um, you know, my goal is to grow this nationally and tap into a coalition of designers that want to um, bring this kind of program, if you will, or chapter to their area and recreate what we've done in San Diego all over the country under our group exemption, um, which makes it easier for them 
um, to become a nonprofit and part of a nonprofit while still being independent in their state and do as many or as little as they want each year. So we're trying to make this program in a, in a package, if you will, that's replicatable um, so that um, other designers can do the same thing. And, you know, someday 10 years from now, all 50 of us will get together at a retreat and talk about our successes and, and, you know, and all the children that we've been able to help. And so I'm super excited about that. That's so inspiring. I'd love for you to share your, the details. If someone listening right now would like to get involved, how can they reach out to you? Yeah, they can go to our website, which is SavvyGivingByDesign.org. So it's S-A-V-V-Y, two Vs, GivingByDesign.org. Um, and there are some links on there they can click on to become a Savvy Giver and send us their information, um, and they can message us. Uh, we've got a couple Facebook pages. So we've got a main national page, uh, Facebook page called Savvy Giving by Design. And then we have three group pages, soon to be um, five, actually, because we've got two other chapters that are currently looking to onboard uh, in the next month or two. So we have a chapter in Mobile, Alabama, and run by a fellow Ivy, Caitlin Waite, okay. and then another one in the Ozarks area, which is Julie Durand, who's another um, designer I met through Ivy. And uh, both of them have active chapters, and I fly back to um, Alabama next Wednesday to see Caitlin's first reveal. So so I'm really, really excited about that. Yeah, really excited. Well, amazing work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. What What a wonderful, inspirational way to end this podcast. Thank you for sharing this. It's truly incredible. And I think nothing makes Lee and I happier than seeing other Ivy designers getting involved in savvy giving. So we truly encourage you, all of you, you listeners, to please please get in touch with Susan if, if you feel this is something you, you want to get involved with. Um, we certainly encourage you to do that. Um, and most importantly, thank you, Susan, so much for sharing all this advice. And we're so inspired by your passion that you put into your work and your um, charity work as well. It's, it's really admirable. And I'm sure oh, that you will really enjoy it as well. So thank you so much. And we're so excited for many more opportunities to talk to you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. 